Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we're beginning our coverage of VRT, which is the last and also the longest novella in The Fifth Head of Cerberus. As we said in the last episode, in the, the weird time stream that we live in, we took a few weeks off between novellas. And during that break, we actually published the first few episodes of The Fifth Head of Cerberus. And we really just want to offer a huge thanks to everyone who helped spread the word about Wolf, uh, about Fifth Head, and, and also about our project. We were really touched by all the shares and the, the retweets, the mentions, the emails, all the new iTunes reviews, and of course, the, the new support on Patreon. All of that means a lot to us. We're so grateful to have such awesome people in our little book club, uh, and we're excited to have you with us on this journey. Yeah, it's a huge encouragement to us to keep this project going. This episode, though, as you said, Glenn, we are doing VRT. We'll be talking about pages 145 to 161. We'll be reading this as we've read the last two novellas in this trilogy of novellas or novel, which is to say that we'll be reading this story as if it's our first time. That means for people who are reading along with us, they'll discover the information in the text at the same time that we do. We find that this reading method really helps us get the most out of the text and what Wolf wants from us as readers and what his goal is as a writer. It's going to take us six episodes to recap the text of VRT, and then we'll do a seventh episode where we wrap up VRT in just a more formal guided discussion. After that, we'll have a few episodes to wrap up the entire book, one with just Glenn and I, where we talk about all three novels and how they work together. And that'll be followed by a conversation with a very special guest and friend of Clay Temple Media, Mark Aramini. I'm super excited about that conversation. We know we have a number of things we want to follow up with Mark about from the last conversation we had with him when we finished the first novella. Uh, we also know ahead of time some of the things that Mark is really itching to talk about taking all three novellas, the the, the novel together as a whole. Uh, and of course, people who've heard our other conversations with him, people who know him from a variety of wolf forums on the internet know how amazing and exciting he is. It's going to be a fantastic episode and really can't wait to, to get there. Me neither. But as it's a few weeks away and we have quite a bit of work to do before we get there, we have to talk about VRT. This is a story uh, that opens with one of my favorite literary tropes. It's kind of a nested story in some way uh, with a beleaguered civil servant or bureaucrat who's given a pile of information about something and has to sift through it for some reason. There's some clues as to who the information is about and what they're recording and what the purpose of the person who created the information is trying to do. And we'll figure out who that is by the end of this episode. But there's also a little bit of a meta story going on here as well. And so Wolf is really, again, pulling out all the stops uh, and, and really digging into this technique to tell a story in the same worlds that we've encountered in the past. So without any further ado, let's just get to the recap. Yeah, there's a big chunk of text to cover tonight. Like the novellas that precede it, VRT opens with an epigram or, or an epigraph. We've been kind of inconsistent with our usage of these terms. Uh, but this one reads, But don't think that I am at all interested in you. You have warmed me, and now I will go out again and listen 
to the dark voices. This is from Carl Chopik's piece of flash fiction called From the Point of View of a Cat, which does exactly what it says in the title. It, it describes a human from a cat's perspective. And in doing that, it makes use of the literary technique of making strange, of, of making ourselves strange. And, and this is a technique, Brandon, that, of course, you always point out when we see Wolf himself using it. And so it seems clear from thinking about Chopek's piece as a whole that VRT is going to give us something similar, right? It's going to give us an examination of humans from the point of view of something else. And since we've already read two stories in this fictional setting, I, I think it's fair to assume that the something else is going to be an abo or, or, or several abos. But I think it's important to note that the, the two lines that Wolf has chosen from this Chopek story uh, are about how even though the cat lives with a human and observes this human, he is still his own creature with his own concerns. And the human is not really one of those concerns, right? There's almost a disdain and perhaps even some hostility in these lines. This is a fantastic piece of fiction. And we're going to kick off our discussion by reading it aloud and really trying to dig into what Wolf is doing by using this as the epigram of this story. Um, Carl Chopik is also famous for popularizing the notion of robots as, you know, like metal slaves. And he is also a Czech writer who wrote primarily in the period between World War I and World War II. And he was writing sci-fi before there really was such a thing. He was kind of a luminary in the early field of speculative fiction. And he died too young, and uh, he was explicitly not awarded a Nobel Prize in literature because he was too vocal in his uh, opposition to Hitler and uh, fascism. Well, now let's move into the story proper. Uh, but I think that before we truly begin the recap, we, we do need to say a few things about the format of this story. And Brandon, you've, you've already mentioned these, alluded to these a little bit. Uh, VRT is uh, a frame story or, or a Ness story, right? There's a, a story that is happening now in the present, but much of what we're going to encounter are other stories within this frame. It's a, a classic storytelling device, and uh, listeners certainly have encountered it before in at least a dozen ghost stories. But Wolf does not use that here simply as bookends. The frame story is very much an important part of the story, and it will actually rear its head every few pages uh, in this first section, um, and then in some of the other sections that we, that we tackle as well. Okay, now the story. Our story begins with a box. It is an old, worn dispatch box made of leather and brass that have both seen better days. The military officer who is taking delivery of this dispatch box orders his slave to open it. Inside are notebooks, reports, forms, letters, spools of audio tape, and even a school composition notebook. The officer picks up this last one, and on the cover are the initials V.R.T. A monogram, the officer thinks. But these initials are poorly written. Uh, they're so bad that they look as if whoever made them was merely copying them as images without understanding that these were letters, that they had some sort of meaning to people who could see them. Uh, very briefly, the officer opens the school composition book and reads, Birds I have seen today. I saw two birds today. One was a skull shrike, and the other was a bird that the shrike had. And the officer tosses this book away before he even finishes reading that complete sentence. But to our ear, 
This sounds very much like something one might see on St. Anne, or at least the possibly fictional St. Anne of John V. Marsh's story that made up the previous novella. Wolf deploys a huge amount of information in this opening section. Reading that sentence from the composition notebook, I felt as if this story was taking place on St. Anne. But we learn in just a little bit that it's actually taking place on St. Quan. Initially, I was puzzled, uh, kind of looking through this section of the story, that there's a slave on St. Anne. St. Anne doesn't didn't seem like a place that would have developed slaves, really. But when we get the description of the slave, it's a very similar description that we get to the four-armed man in Fifth Head of Cerberus. And kind of putting these pieces together, you get the sense that this is another number five clone, in some sense, who has been modified, this slave that has been made to serve this military officer. The The slave acts very strangely in that the slave draws the officer's dagger in order to open this box to cut it open, and the officer feels no danger. There's no sense that he's going to come to any harm as, the, as a result of this. And then the slave kisses the blade of the dagger and returns it. And we're going to see more strange behavior from the slave, but I think this is Wolf adding on to the idea that slaves have been modified mentally to be docile and servile um, that we see in Fifth Ed. We're going to see a number of instances here, even in just this first section, where the, that this officer is a fairly brutal slave owner, that he is constantly aware of the, the power dynamic between the two of them and wants to make sure that his slave is also constantly aware of that. I'm also really glad you, point, you pointed out, Glenn, that the letters that were monogrammed onto this box were poorly written. I want to read the line that Wolf writes about how they were written. He says they were formed as though a savage had imitated them from letters indicated to him on a sign. And to me, thinking back on the novellas we've already read when we're thinking about this, these levels of imitation and inhumanity towards different races clashing, um, to me, this is a red flare that Wolf is putting up and hopefully it'll pay off at some point in the story. Well, now that the officer has discarded this notebook, he he picks up a letter from the civil service that he finds amid this disorganized pile of materials. He skims this letter, so Wolf only gives us a few key words, but the gist of it is that there is some sort of dispute about the provenance of these materials or, or of the person who composed them, and that this requires the officer's attention. Now, the dispute seems to be whether or not these materials come from Earth, and it seems that it's going to be up to this officer to make the final decision on this matter. But right now, we, the readers, have no idea what is at stake in this dispute, and it's going to be a while before we find out. We will not really find out in this section. The officer returns to the composition book now, and and there's an indication that it had been purchased at Medallion Supplies in Frenchman's Landing on St. Anne. And so here is our first indication about the history of settlement on St. Anne, since we've had a deal with the meta-textually complex A Story. And it seems that our hypothesis that St. Anne had never been colonized by French speakers uh, is not true, which, of course, we really knew would be the case, but we were trying to do our uh, our best to due diligence to treat the text uh, of a story in isolation. Right. We assumed that it was the 
second wave, the English speakers who had landed on St. Anne at the very end of a story by John V. Marsh, because we knew that the Frenchmen had landed first, and that somehow the Shadow Children were this isolated group of French-speaking colonists, perhaps, who just lost their way and never adapted civilization because they found the drug that gave them an expanded consciousness. But that's not the case. It was the Frenchman who landed at the end of a story by John V. Marsh. And now we have a whole nother series of questions that we'll have to wait about six episodes to answer. Yeah, but I'm excited to to readdress all of these issues when we get to the end of, of VRT and when we're we're wrapping up the novel as a whole. But there's more that we learn here. We also learn that this book is from Armstrong School. So clearly, we are dealing with the English-speaking phase of St. Anne's history, and presumably, we're close to the time of the events in The Fifth Head of Cerberus. And we'll find out a little bit more about this before too long. Now the officer takes a look at the spools of audio tape. These used to have adhesive labels, but the adhesive material has all worn off, and so the spools themselves are no longer identifiable, but the labels are in the box. So the officer can see that these are records of interrogations, and there were at least 17 of these interrogations. And since the individual reels are no longer labeled, I think we can safely assume that we're in for a narrative that is going to be at least a little bit out of order. That is my note on this section. Everything is out of order. This guy's got a mountain of different forms of of different mediums of information to sift through before he gets to the bottom of whatever it is he's trying to get to the bottom of. And we're going to see in the way he engages with this interrogation that this officer is kind of a cruel man, it seems, at heart. I think it's fair to say that the whole organization that he's a part of is built on cruelty, or that, that's the currency that they work with. The officer plays one of these audio tapes, and it, it contains two voices, uh, an interrogator and an interrogatee. The interrogatee's name is not stated on the tape, but we learn that he is a prisoner and that he stays in cell number 143. He isn't old, and he is an anthropologist. And of course, we've met a character who fits this description already in this book. The prisoner indicates that he would like to have more paper and pencils and a desk to write on, and we learn here that already he has used up a great deal of paper that they've given him, uh, and that even that amount of paper is going to become a very big nuisance for his uh, imprisoners if they ever have to forward his case to a higher authority. And so I think it's safe to say that those papers are part of what is in this box, and the officer whose perspective we are in is that higher authority. And that's all of the tape that the officer listens to before he shifts his attention to another object that's in the box, and this is a sturdy canvas notebook. Inside, we discover that the first three sheets are missing, uh, very conveniently, and so the text begins in media res. What we can glean, however, is that this is the personal journal of someone who has just come to St. Anne from Earth. This person is struggling with the slightly longer day of St. Anne, uh, living in a kind of interminable jet lag, it seems. Sounds very unpleasant. But he's also marveling at the pink sun that emits more light than heat, and which leaves the sky behind it nearly black rather than bright blue. And I have to say, Brandon, that although the fifth head of Cerberus opens with talking about pinkish light, I always assume that that pinkness was because it was sunset, not because the star that these planets orbit is actually pink. 
Right. And we also get this great description of summer in Fifth Head of Cerberus. We have seasons on San Croix. And we didn't get any sense from a story by John V. Marsh that it was exceptionally cold. It was cold at night. Um, but for all we could tell, the abos in that story mostly didn't really wear clothes. They didn't fashion clothes for themselves. So I never got a sense that this planet would be cold or in any way uninviting to somebody from Earth. St. Anne seems like an ideal place for Earth people to settle. One thing I do want to point out is that uh, our interrogatee, the the creator of all this information, uh, came from uh, Rancevo, which is, interestingly, the only place uh, that where Charlemagne l- lost a battle. His only military defeat was there. And this is where we get kind of the beginning of the, really the code of chivalry, the chivalric romances from the song of Roland. Roland was a big hero in this fight. And I'm going to be keeping my eyes open to see if there's any real connections between um, the themes of this story and anything having to do with chivalric romance. Yeah, that's a text I'm actually just getting ready to teach this upcoming semester. We get another place name here in this section of the story as well, and that's Vienne, which is a, another town in France. They're all named after towns in France. That's uh, extraordinarily important uh, in my own research as well. So I don't know, subconsciously, somehow reading this book in undergrad determined the shape of my future studies. I never realized it. <laughs> I believe that. That happens. <laughs> well, the author of this journal goes on to describe the the planet. He he describes it as being temperate in climate, but having the appearance of being tropical in its its flora. And he describes the the city that he's in. He describes it as being jerry-built and he describes it as preposterous. It's constructed of logs from the native cypress-like trees and it's roofed with corrugated plastic sheet The whole thing is positively colonial to him, and he he even thinks that it compares to Martinique or to to Mako, and and all it is missing is the sound of natives beating on drums in the distance. And this thought, this thought of natives beating on drums, leads him to write about the reports of the native Annies using signal drums, uh, these reports from the earliest explorers who were looking further south on the planet. I just want to point out something about this signal drumming, these reports of signal drumming. We know from a story by John V. Marsh how important trees are to the native Anis. And we get a lot about trees in the section. One, the civilization is built from logs from these cypress-like trees. And we don't know if these are the sacred trees or not. But just that immediate reference calls to mind you know, the horror uh, of, of wiping out the Annie's people without realizing it, as many of them, we believe, were perhaps trees in some way. And we also get this other reference at the end that the Annie's communicated by imitation with the sound of their own blows, their own speech. So it was kind of like a chanting language, a rhythmic language. Um, and he calls this striking of the hand on the on the trees, talking drums. But we have experiences in the last story where John Sandwalker talks to trees. So like in some odd way, this prisoner is understanding something that he'll understand in much more detail later. He's intuiting maybe the beginning of an idea of 
what this race was like. And Wolf has done a, a clever thing here with naming the trees as as being like cypresses. They're called sycamores in a story by John V. Marsh. But this is actually a, a, a joke about how we translate these Greek words into Latin or into English uh, from Christian scripture. The the Greek words for for these trees, the sycamore and the cypress, are used interchangeably in a way that we would not do with our uh, post-Enlightenment uh, taxonomy of all of the species that live on the planet. And I think Wolf is having fun here by interchanging them himself. Well, the officer loses interest in this personal journal. He seems to be the most impatient person ever. He won't just sit down and read a text. And now he looks at a sheaf of papers that were bound together back in Port Mimizan, where this whole box has come from. And these two contain a first-person account, and it's clear that it was written by the prisoner we heard being interrogated on the tape. It's something of a rambling account of how the prisoner has broken the sort of Morse code that other prisoners use to communicate with each other from cell to cell and all around the, the prison. But we learn two things that are important and interesting here. One is that the prisoners refer to themselves by their cell number. And two, the writer has a nearly eidetic memory. He can perfectly recall the exact words that people use, even when he doesn't understand their full meaning. And because of this, he's able to understand them later, and sometimes years or even decades later, as he has grown in wisdom and education. And he gives us an example of this by writing about things that he remembers his mother saying when he was four, which presumably was 20, 30, 40 years ago, and he remembers them perfectly. Yeah, it's a fantastic literary literary device and one that Wolf will return to in the future. I'm not exactly sure what role it plays in the story yet as we perhaps are meant to be engaging with the objective gaze of the military officer rather than the um, words of the prisoners. But one thing I do want to point out here is that this tapping uh, Morse code almost like mode of communication that the prisoners engage with is almost exactly like the signal drumming he talked about earlier where they use they imitate speech with the drum sounds this is the same thing they assign phonetic sounds to a series of taps in order to get their meaning across and so just a page before we're being told this is like what all primitive people do and then we're being shown these people on port mimizan in, in prison who are doing very nearly the same thing right just by virtue of being imprisoned they've become themselves primitive here we get uh, an interlude with the officer. We, we come out of the text that he's reading, and, and we are really in the, the frame narrative. He steps outside to enjoy the night breeze, and St. Anne, high over his head, seeps the world in sad green light, and he can see the masts of ships in the harbor. And I think that this description that Wolf gives is a, a really beautiful way for him to let us know that this part of the story is back on San Croix. This is really when this becomes explicit to us. But he's also letting us know that it is in a harbor city that is not Port Mimizon. So he's, he's really showing us the extent to which you know, the ocean is what characterizes San Croix in the way that the vegetation defines St. Anne. But this officer is not merely interested in enjoying the night breeze. In fact, he might not be interested in that at all. 
What he wants is for his slave to go and fetch him his favorite prostitute, a woman named Cassia, or perhaps it's pronounced Cassilla. But the slave knows that she is busy with the major right now and uh, will be for the next two hours. And so the officer goes back to work while he waits his turn. And I have to say that I could have done without this bit of the story, but I suppose that it serves the purpose of informing us that the officer is not at all a sympathetic character. Uh, And he does this before we get too far into this tale. We'll be talking about why this type of interlude is in the story in our discussion. So I really don't want to go into it in too much detail right now. Here you have another strange encounter with the slave as well, where it's just routine for the officer to beat the slave if he doesn't get an answer he likes it's routine for the slave to take the beating and feign misery at the hands of the officer and then just go back to where he's hiding and waiting to hear if the officer makes a sound that he needs to respond to and i also get the sense here that the slave is kind of a slow thinker or maybe only knows information he's supposed to know and i think once again we're just It's just being reinforced that this is the type of slave that Maitre made at the Maison du Chien. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking more about that when we get to the discussion. When the officer returns to work, we're we're back in the narrative of this personal journal. The writer is an anthropologist. It it is, of course, the prisoner on the interrogation tape. And and we're going to learn in just a few pages that this is indeed Dr. Marsh. And so I will just begin calling him that now. And of course, as we know from the first novella, Dr. Marsh is on St. Anne to learn everything that he can about the indigenous people. Here in the journal, we learn that he believes firmly that there definitely was a native race on St. Anne, because the stories are too widespread and and just too well documented for the whole thing to be nothing more than an overgrown new planet myth. But the problem is that they are already extinct, or nearly so. And it's only been a little more than a century after first contact. And this is unprecedented in the history of Earth and also seemingly in the history of other human settlements elsewhere in outer space. And these natives have also left no physical traces. They've only left lots of highly exaggerated legends. And here Dr. March invokes the examples of the Paleolithic Caucasoid pygmies who survived in Scandinavia and Ireland until the end of the 18th century. And this is a bit of fun that Wolf is having by telling us that at some point in the future, we are going to discover that the myths of elves and fairies and leprechauns are really about several tiny populations of pygmies who managed to remain largely out of sight until the Industrial Revolution. Uh, This, of course, right, we all know is something that fantasy and weird fiction writers love to do. Uh, And we even talked about this all the way back in our second episode of The Fifth Head of Cerberus. Uh, And there we invoked Robert E. Howard and Arthur Mackin, uh, who are two authors who have used this idea that we know Wolf has read. It was just funny to see Wolf bring this full circle here. I think there's a little more at play here as well, which, again, we'll, we'll be getting into in our discussion. It seems almost as if that this sort of myth of what Wolf here refers to as the good people, which is, you know, uh, the fairy or the elves or the gnomes or whatever, are something that the stories are parallel with on St. Anne, that they're telling the same types of stories about these people. There's some maybe archetypal necessity for 
this type of creature to exist any time a new land is conquered or colonized. One other thing Wolf points out here is something that we found was all over the story in a story by John V. Marsh is the fact that humankind was an absolute disaster to this group. It was something about humanity that destroyed the natives on the planet rather than any other factor being the case. And this kind of inherent, uh, maybe even almost accidental destructiveness of humanity is going to be lurking in the background of the entirety of this novella. Uh, and possibly it's there for the whole novel. And this will be something we'll, we'll get to in our wrap-up episodes as well. Well, now we come to our, our first dated entry in this journal. It is March 13, the Ides of March. Uh, Dr. Marsh goes to visit an 80-year-old woman whose name is Mrs. Mary Blunt. And, and this is a great name. Uh, Wolf here is combining the names of two different mistresses of Henry VIII, uh, because, you know, why not? He didn't have uh, internet random name generators to use to come up with character names. So I think this is just hilarious and fantastic. And Mary Blunt lives on a farm about 20 miles outside of Frenchman's Landing. So presumably very close to the locales where a story by John V. Marsh takes place. Mary Blunt was born on Earth, but she came to St. Anne as an infant. And, and we actually learned some interesting details about the process of colonizing St. Anne uh, from her story. Mary Blunt is an English speaker who was born on one of the spaceships headed to this star system. Uh, she was born before it launched. It's a, it's a pretty funny story. But by the time that her ship arrived, the first group of English-speaking colonists had already arrived and defeated the French settlers. So we can see that there, there must have been a lot of people coming on a lot of spaceships in this English-speaking wave. But we also learned that the settlers were cryogenically frozen for the journey, or, or at least something similar to that was done to them, such that they fell asleep on Earth, and then they woke up uh, on St. Anne, or in orbit uh, around St. Anne, more or less. The French were pretty badly defeated in this war, and everyone except for the littlest children were horribly scarred uh, or are, are missing limbs. And, and this is all really gruesome. But it's contrasted by Mary Blunt's memory of how, as a teenager, it was always these unmarred French girls who commanded the attention of the boys, and how they were the ones who ended up marrying all of the handsome and all of the, the rich, uh, new English-speaking colonists. We see this exact thing referenced in the section surrounding the play in Fifth Head of Cerberus, where being a French aristocrat, uh, an original colonist, was still something to be proud of on St. Croix, and one imagines now also on St. Anne. I just love how Wolf is really trying to bring everything together in this story. Wolf's description, brief though it is, of the impact of the second wave of colonists coming is something we'll be, we'll be discussing a little bit, um, but it's so affecting. It is, it is gruesome, as you say, you know, the sentence he writes is, uh, you know, she was one of the one of the first English speaking ships to arrive. They're not the first. The war was mostly over when she got there. And Mary Blunt says, yes, there was still quite a few French left here when we came. Most, all except the littlest children, had their arms or legs gone or was scarred terrible. And we're going to get another strange dismemberment story later on in this section. And there's all these elements of folklore that I think begin to add together. The French children have 
maybe no parents or incomplete parents and grow up. Maybe coming up with stories about this race of people that helped them in some way overcome the tragedy of the second wave of colonists. Though I think we're meant to get a more objective sense of the presence of the native Annies throughout these reports. And of course, that's what Dr. Marsh is here to talk about, right? The Abos or the, the Annies, as we'll, we'll call them more frequently in this story. And, and Mary Blunt has you know, a story to tell about them. She says that she saw lots of native Annies when she was a kid. She also says that they weren't people. They were just animals who were shaped like people. But people are not. She used to play with Annie's children on her farm, and they never caused her any harm or, or did any violence, but they would steal food whenever and wherever they could find it. And one night, her father killed three of them with his gun when they were raiding their family's storehouse. And one of these three was a child that Mary played with, and she cried over this episode because she thought that her father had killed her friend. Yeah, and her response after all this time of reflection is, that's just the way children are. She's doubled down on the sense that the Annies were never people. They were just shaped like people. And Wolf is giving us a hint here that maybe she believes that because she had to, to overcome this sense of tragedy as a child, seeing her father kill one of her human-shaped friends for, I don't know, taking a chicken out of the hen house or something like that. You get the sense here that the Annies, and this will be reinforced in just a few pages, have absolutely no sense of personal property, that they are in pure survival mode all the time. That's not to say they don't play the way animals play, but their key concern is survival. I have to wonder if five-year-old Mary Blunt would have said that these were not people, that they were just animals that looked like people. I think you're right to point to that this is an attitude that she has learned in order to, to fit in and also perhaps to make sense of her father's violence. Uh, what do you do when you're faced with with seeing someone you love perpetrate that violence on uh, someone else that you care about? You, you have to craft some other narrative uh, in your mind in order to go on loving this person and, and living in this world. And it does seem like that is the story that she's now telling Dr. Marsh. Well, we get another very brief interlude with the officer. Now, Wolf gives us a, a conversation that the officer has with someone else in the office. Uh, the information here that really matters is that the prisoner whose journal he is reading is not a political prisoner, but is a criminal prisoner. And this distinction is going to become something that matters in, in later sections of the novella. When we return to the journal, we get uh, the account of an interview that Dr. Marsh conducted with Robert Coulot, who has uh, a story from his grandfather about another encounter with an Anise. His grandfather used to be a walker, a hiker, I think we would say, and he was of the opinion that the Anis were not one race, but in fact were many distinct races. Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure if race here is being used for species or for culture group, and I'm looking forward to finding out more about that. My sense is that it's being used for species, uh, that you see the English attitudes in the story really be the ones that are about separating people into people groups. Um, but the French attitudes are more aware of different species somehow, perhaps because they came to the planet first. I also love the name Robert Coulot, who is a designer. He makes clothes. It's like 
culottes the pants. Um, there's just another funny wolfy play on words here, I think, where he pulled the name out of a hat. Right, and everyone knows uh, sans culottes from the the French Revolution. Uh, presumably, Wolf is is referring to the the politics of the French Revolution here, as we're going to see later on in the story that uh, political ideological disputes have not been left in the dust of Operation Ares, but in fact are present in this book as well. Well, now let's let's get to the story that Robert Coulot has to say. When his grandfather was an old man, he told a story about going on a short walk and encountering an Annie's who would sometimes appear like a man and sometimes like a fence post or a dead tree or old wood. And uh, we're going to see this uh, repeated throughout the story. Yeah, Wolf here with this translation, with this imperfect translation from Kulo is forcing us to try to triangulate a meaning rather than giving us the actual word the grandfather used and its direct translation. This is reaching for meaning, not providing a definition. Yeah, and Marsh, I think, even comes away from this conversation knowing less than he did when he went into it. We're going to get another interview now, and this is with Dr. Hagsmith, another great name. Dr. Hagsmith considers himself to be an amateur folklorist, and he explains to Dr. Marsh that his approach to studying the Anis differs from Marsh's. Dr. Marsh is looking for what is true, and he's going to find very little of it. But Dr. Hagsmith looks for what is false, and he has found plenty. Dr. Hagsmith has been on St. Anne for 20 years. And in those days, they all thought that this city would be a metropolis by now, with museums and parks and sports stadiums. But they just never attracted enough people. They never attracted enough money. And so the town remains this preposterous, jerry-built place. But in these 20 years, Dr. Hagsmith has collected thousands of stories about the Annies. According to him, most Annies live in what he calls the back of beyond, which is a really wonderful expression for wilderness. Uh, this is coined by, by Walter Scott in his early novel, The Antiquary, which is the, the only Walter Scott novel that's on the shelves here in the studio. And according to other stories that Dr. Hagsmith knows, the wild Annies look like people, but they are the color of stones with great shocks of wild hair, except for the ones that don't have any hair at all. Some are very tall, and some are smaller than children. And of course, we've encountered all of these descriptions before in A Story by John V. Marsh. Dr. Hagsmith tells Dr. Marsh about one particular Annie's who was seen walking around and resurrecting animals that had been killed when the new railroad had been built. People called him Cinderwalker because of this resurrection ability he has. One day, a human woman had her arm cut off by the train, Now, her husband got her to the hospital in time, and the doctors were able to get a frozen arm out of the organ bank and graft it on. A standard procedure, not really an interesting story in its own right, apparently. But Cinderwalker goes and does the exact opposite. He found the woman's arm and then grew a new woman from it, identical to the original. And so now her husband had two identical wives. And seemingly this was a great thing for this man. But the Dominican priests got on his case for having two wives. And so he had to get rid of one of them. And he decided to get rid of the new one uh, because she couldn't chop wood properly because the Anis aren't good with tools. I really love this anecdote. This whole section with Dr. Hagsmith is just a joy to read. 
I love the interview style, the the mode that Wolf is telling the story in with questions and answers, uh, the, the documentary style story. It's just fantastic. There are a few things in the section that I that I want to point out. The first thing I want to point out here is that it continually comes up that time is a little bit longer on St. Anne than it is on Earth. Marsh points this out by referencing something in Earth Years, both uh, this odd interlude and Dr. Hagsmith kind of point out the difference in time. I'm not exactly sure what the point of that is, but there's three times in three pages almost these references about the difference in length of years. Another thing that comes out of this great interview with Dr. Hagsmith uh, is that when Dr. Marsh asks if the Annies still exist, Dr. Hagsmith's response is, as much as they ever did. It's just something I want to point out. As we're looking at Dr. Marsh first uncovering the parallels between the stories of elves and uh, fairies and imps, mischief makers, changelings on Earth, and what's going on here, he's encountering a folklorist who might be more interested in the mythology than the, than the reality here. And that might be worth digging into. Yeah, the business with the, the time is interesting. We know this from the first novella. I, I don't even recall that we actually really talked about it in any of those episodes, uh, because the, the difference in the years is a matter of a few weeks. It, it matters a little bit for the way that the narrator is calculating his age, but it's not extraordinarily significant. But here, for the first time, we're actually getting the story from the perspective of someone who wasn't born in this star system. And it seems to be being used to demonstrate his alienness to this world, and also to point out to us that the people who live on St. Anne are aware that he is a stranger here, that he is an alien, and that he needs to be treated almost like a, a child who doesn't know what's going on. But what we didn't have a sense of in A Fifth Head of Cerberus or in a story is that the days are also a little bit longer. So it, it's not merely that these planets take a little bit longer to revolve around the, the sun each year. It is also that the rotation is different. And so the days are a little bit longer, which is why he's experiencing this uh, you know, interminable jet lag. But I'm not sure what Wolf is doing with that, if, if that's going to become a theme that, we want, that we'll want to be paying attention to and be dissecting. I'm looking forward to seeing how this progresses in uh, later sections of the story. Well, we've got one last interview in, in this part of the journal, though, though we don't get the full name of the interviewee here, only the information that this is a, a Frenchman. But Dr. Marsh is interested in learning more about Annie's sacred places, and this man tells him that they had many. Anywhere a tree grew in the mountains was sacred to them, and the places where the river Tempest enters the seas was a very sacred spot for them, and there was a ring of great trees there the stumps of which are still visible. And we will absolutely be talking about the relationship between this real river called the Latin word for time and the metaphor of time as a backwards flowing river in a story when we get to our, our wrap up episode in a few months. And we've got all of the details of this story under our belt. Uh, and I'm excited to do that because this remains something that is giving me a headache. But this Frenchman also gives Dr. Marsh one more detail about Annie's sacred spaces that appears in a story, right? He mentions that there is indeed a sacred cave far up the River Tempest. This is the Gorge of Thunder, always. 
And he also tells Dr. Marsh that there's a man named Trenchard and his son who will take him to see the sacred tree ring if he pays them to, to do it. Trenchard, he says, is mostly a beggar, and he even pretends to be a native Anise because his hands are so crippled by arthritis that he, he can't really work. And this seems to be something that everyone agrees is a defining feature of the natives, that they their hands don't work very well. And so Trenchard is leaning into this trope. We have this notion come up initially in The Fifth Head of Cerberus. It is really doubled down on in a story by Jean V. Marsh. And it is now been mentioned about four times in the first 10 pages of this story that the abos cannot use tools. They cannot wield things that have been fashioned by men. Whether that is the result of an imperfect imitation of humanity, that when they took on the form, they didn't know what everything was for, or some other symbolic defect that this is pointing to, we're going to have to wait to find out, I think. It's also really crucial to note in this section, and Wolf just slips it in there, and you did also, Glenn, that the sacred ring of trees has been chopped down. And this goes back to the cypress-like trees being chopped down that we saw earlier, that there was no attempt to treat the native race on this planet by the invaders as anything but animals or primitives in some way who who did not deserve the time it would take to understand their practices and rites and religions, though now people are referring to places they went as sacred. Sacredness is something you would only attribute to a, a culture you respect in some way. So there's some real cognitive dissonance going on here that Wolf is bringing up. But he's again doubling down on the fact that humanity, something in the nature of humanity, has led to the total destruction of this species. I do think it's clear that this town that they're in has been constructed out of these trees, which is disturbing for all the ways all the ways that you mentioned. And I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing the continued interplay here. I mean, this is very much like the sort of thing that David says all the way back in A Fifth Head of Cerberus. Uh, we want to think of the abos as being human because they're more interesting that way, but we can only anthropomorphize them or treat them as being people if they're not here to be an inconvenience to us anymore. This act is just a concrete example of the thing that David was describing. Well, we're very near the end of our first section now. The officer flips 20 or 30 pages deeper into the journal and comes across an inventory for an expedition Dr. Marsh has two rifles and a shotgun. He's got matches, food and cooking gear. He's got a tent. He's got two sleeping bags and everything that he'll need for his research, including books and notebooks and pencils. And multivitamins. Yeah, you need those. Look, I mean, the sun is pink. He's not getting any vitamin <laughs> right. D from he's this. Got, he's got any. That's why his face is so pale, perhaps, when he gets to, to Port Mimisan. Yes, I think exactly. I think we're going to end up talking for quite a while about, about his skin tone in our wrap-up episodes. Well, Dr. Marsh is gathering all of these supplies because he's, he's going to hike up the River Tempest and he's going to find that sacred cave. And we learn here that, that Dr. Marsh did his PhD at Columbia. And when he was a grad student there, he used to read about Victorian explorers and he would fantasize about leading such an adventure of his own. And now he's going to get to. And for the second time in this book, I have to say I'm filled with, with real 
envy. I, I want to be going on this expedition, uh, either in place of Dr. Marsh or maybe even with him, if that was the price. And this, uh, this brings us now to the end of what we're covering today. Yeah, this guy is completely unprepared for whatever adventure he's going on. This is the kind of optimistic uh, boy's adventure beginning where the hero has no idea what's in store for him. The worst he can imagine is falling off the mule or that the boy that he's traveling with somehow turns out to be wretched and cuts his throat. He can't he doesn't imagine that going out into the wilderness with a lot of heavy gear and packages could somehow be dangerous to him. Yeah, we, we knew this type of person in the army. Yeah, well, they don't just exist in the army, it turns out. It turns out. <laughs> well, on that note, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brennan Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of the first section that we covered of VRT. Give us your theories. Let us know what you think of the story so far. We'd love to hear from you. Next time, we'll be back with a discussion of this section. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs> <laughs>